Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, I'm Daniel Eisenberg, and this is McKinsey on Startups. Our guest today is Elon Gurr, the founder and CEO of Activate, an innovative nonprofit organization that offers two-year entrepreneurial fellowships to emerging scientists to try to help bridge the gap in the U.S. innovation ecosystem between the research lab and the startup world, or as Activate describes it, the science-to-market gap. Activate offers a wide range of resources, knowledge, and networks to its fellows so they can begin to turn their cutting-edge ideas and technologies into real-world practical solutions and businesses. The fellows are primarily focused on climate tech and the hard sciences, working to develop sophisticated, sustainable approaches to help a wide range of traditional industries, including agriculture, chemicals, energy, manufacturing, and transportation, contribute to the fight against climate change. So far, Activate has supported almost 150 fellows who've launched more than 100 startups and raised close to 900 million in additional public and private funding. Gurr himself spent earlier parts of his career in the worlds of both academic science and startups, which makes him ideally suited for his job. Welcome to the podcast, Elon. Great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about Activate, its mission, and how it came about. So Activate is a nonprofit. We run what we call an entrepreneurial fellowship program. Our mission is to improve the world by empowering scientists and engineers to translate their research from the lab to the market. Our philosophy is that one of the reasons cutting-edge science doesn't end up turning into new products as quickly and efficiently as we'd like for society is because the process of figuring out how a new scientific discovery can be practical is an extremely hard and messy process. We built Activate motivated initially by an observation that climate change was an enormous, unlike any technology revolution or industrial revolution that the world has ever seen, we realized there was so much talent scientifically and so many ideas on how you could radically transform the biggest industries in the world to be more sustainable. And frankly, no one was supporting that early stage innovation. So we said, wow, you know, we need to tackle this and as quickly as possible. You've been in the technology world and science world for quite a while, both as an entrepreneur and on government. So you had been observing this issue for a while. When did you decide that doing something like Activate was the way to start to address it? It was through my experience as a scientist who wanted to do applied research and develop technology specifically in climate. And then as an entrepreneur, I realized something's broken here. My trajectory was as sort of a PhD bench scientist left academia, got a chance to be involved in a couple early stage startups, and then ended up serendipitously helping the Department of Energy stand up research and innovation funding agency called RPE, modeled after DARPA. And it was kind of once my experience went from the very narrow uh, world of academic research to this broader world of being outside of academia and seeing how innovation was done. And it wasn't until I, I was at this, you know, at this point of managing research programs across the entire country that all of a sudden I kept seeing a lot of the same issues throughout. And so the voice got louder and louder. 
and as an entrepreneur, the the way I'm wired to try and drive change is okay. Well, what do we need to create that doesn't exist in the world? And uh, that's now called Activate. Let's talk a little bit about how Activate works. You guys choose a certain amount of fellows for each year. How do you determine the composition of your cohorts, given that you focus on eight target industries, from agriculture and chemicals to computing and electricity, transportation, manufacturing, buildings, and defense? We spend so much time thinking about our fellows and pick folks who we think are really unique in their ability to change the world. You know, we throw tons of money into thinking about the scientific discovery process. That's in academia. In the private sector, we know the stories of throwing money at scaling technologies. In the ecosystem, we don't actually put that much money into that handoff between the two. And translating science into products is really, really difficult. It's a process of learning and adjustment and adaptation. And what that means is there are going to be so many twists and turns. And so for us, the key asset in that process, the person who can navigate all those twists and turns. You know, if you're thinking about something like next generation perovskite materials for solar energy that is a tenth the cost of what we have today, you know, there are only so many people who can learn and adapt around how a perovskite semiconductor is going to turn into a technology. And we're selecting folks who have this level of technical acumen and expertise where they can really go drive an effort to develop a technology, which is unlike anything the world has seen before. And of the people with that expertise, we're looking for this narrow subset of people who are so motivated to see their research and their ideas out in the world that they're willing to commit the next however many years of their life to figuring out how by hook or by crook, they're going to get their stuff out of the world. It continues to sound like you guys act to bridge this gap that has existed between the traditional academic research community and the private sector. I would love to think that like we're a solution to this gap, but it's really important to recognize that we are a tiny part of a solution. If you really want to solve this research to solutions gap, that's got to mean a reorientation of billions of dollars a year of how we spend research and innovation funding, both from government and industry. And we're hoping that what we're doing can help motivate people and catalyze that to happen over time systemically. You guys talk about helping inventors go from zero to one and bringing scale to science. So I'd love to hear about the ecosystem of support that you offer fellows beyond the facilities and a core curriculum. How actively involved are you in day to day while your fellows are with you for those two years? So we use the zero to one language to keep ourselves true to the idea that if Activate's going to exist as a nonprofit, we should be doing things that wouldn't otherwise happen without our intervention and support. We've realized that a PhD level scientist who's been trained to do science has had anti-training in practical applied entrepreneurship. It's really about the ideas and not about all of the different practicalities. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to surround our fellows with resources that can actually help not just a maturation of the ideas and the technology, but also a mindset shift. First of all, we give them time to singularly focus on this pursuit. And then we're giving them mentorship and access to world-class research labs to be able to develop technology. But we've learned over time that there are a lot of other things that we need to bring to the table that help with this mindset shift of understanding, you know, how do I figure out whether something is valuable or viable in this industry? One is any fellow we bring in to activate 
ends up being supported as part of a local virtual community. That community of fellows, 10 to 20 fellows, are coordinated through a single managing director in our organization who themselves has lived experience uh, as a deep scientist who has gone and translated their research into something practical in the world, either as an entrepreneur or in a corporate environment. At any given moment, every fellow in that community is learning something new, is having a mindset spurt or a growth spurt in terms of their technology maturation or understanding how to tap into a market. Hopefully when it works, every fellow's growth spurt ends up being a little contagious. Others get to see it and say, maybe that's a a growth that I need to make in terms of how I'm approaching the problem. I would think a lot of these folks have spent a lot of time in somewhat of an isolated existence in the academic research world. So that community and social aspect of folks learning from each other is critical to taking this next step. Yeah. When they take the fellowship, unlike other environments within science or within corporates where then they have a boss or an advisor and they're just following their lead, we basically say, no, this is an entrepreneurial fellowship. So once you're a fellow you now run the show. (laughs) And interestingly enough, one of the problems we have in scientific research today is there are too few environments that empower earlier career scientists to run the show. Are you helping them prepare for how to sort of navigate that world in terms of how to pitch and talk about their product or idea in such a way that they can overcome potential resistance in the venture community? We find that the fellowship is basically the clinical experiential learning journey. And there really is a transformation in the fellows across their mindset and just the way they view the world. We're really set up to be a support structure for how to navigate that journey. And so every week at Activate, we are passing through visitors uh, and it could be everything from a venture capitalist to a program manager at DARPA a Nobel laureate might come by. And the fellows are constantly interacting with those folks, uh, starting with the hypothesis of here's what I'm building and here's the value. And in each of those interactions, a few things happen. One is they can update their algorithm around what's valuable, you know, what's interesting about the technology or hard about the technology. They also now have made a connection that might be a resource to help move it forward. Another is just providing, I would say, a scaffold for them to figure out how to drive their own learning and progress. And so Every quarter, even though our fellows are sort of proto-founders, they might not yet have a company, uh, we have a structure whereby every quarter they lead what looks like sort of a proto-board meeting. You know, this is basically the tool for them to drive their own progress. And so all these things sort of layer in in a way that, that seems to be really productive in that transformation. Right. One of the things that that comes to mind a little is startup accelerators or incubators. Was that in some ways an inspiration? Or did you think consciously about how your offering had to be different from that? Initially, I thought about this as a incubator or accelerator. Um, And then I realized that, frankly, it's an incubator or an accelerator focused on some of the hardest innovations that we could possibly try and solve. Our fellows are talking about things like within petrochemical plants, there are these process units called separation units. And within those, there are these membranes that determine the efficiency of a chemical separation. If you add up all of the energy we use on chemical separations in the world, it's, a, it's accountable for about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But fundamentally, what I realized was you know, the incubator or investment vehicle that tries to find folks working on those innovations 
at such an early intervention point where it's not even clear if they have something valuable is not a great moneymaker. I tried to pencil it out and said, if I try and make money off of this, I won't focus on the hardest, most important innovations. I'll focus on the ones that can make money, which is the whole problem. And then it sort of occurred to me, well, really, this is a job that we need done from the world of nonprofit, you know, of government research, of philanthropic research. I had never been involved, you know, working for a nonprofit, let alone starting one. Um, and so it was kind of the naivety of not knowing how hard starting a nonprofit would be that kind of led me here. And then as we did good work, we've been able to now start attracting sponsorship for the fellowships from the folks that really care about solving these problems. And so our fellowships are now, some of them funded by philanthropy, uh, increasingly a lot of them actually funded by government um, research funding agencies, which is really encouraging for, for me to see personally. And so there, these are groups like the Department of Energy and DARPA. What were the key differences you've encountered and learned about in raising money in the nonprofit world versus the more traditional startup space? That To build any great institution, at the foundation, you need two things. One is resources and money. And two is you need incredible talent. And it turns out that it's a lot easier to raise money when you can look investors in the eye and say, hey, you know, we're going to give you back 10 times this money. And it turns out it's a lot easier to attract talent when you can say, hey, if things go really well, uh, you know, there will be a, a big monetary reward. You know, it's interesting. It squarely puts you into the territory of uh, working with economically irrational actors in some sense. <laughs> and that could just be really hard to navigate. One of the learnings there is the only way you can make it work is if the nonprofit you're building actually does address a real problem that's a market failure. The other thing that might be less obvious that I'll mention here is there is a really vibrant and productive community to fund and support startups in the for-profit world. And there really isn't one in the nonprofit world. There are a few pockets, but one of the biggest gaps that I've seen is when you're starting something new, you're inherently doing something speculative. In the for-profit startup, you raise your seed round. In nonprofits, it's basically everyone wants to just be that first little catalytic money. You can get a little bit of money to go do something and you can succeed wildly with that first pot of money. There is no Series B funder in philanthropy or Series C. Everyone says like, oh, well, we did our job. We sort of catalyzed you. That ends up being really challenging. We've been really lucky at Activate to have found a handful of uh, philanthropic sponsors who have taken sort of a startup mindset. Folks really thinking about how do you create new entities that can sort of punch above their weight in terms of impact in science innovation and climate innovation. You talked a little bit about the challenges folks in the climate tech space have faced in terms of turning ideas into solutions. So I'm just wondering what other challenges you see these folks encountering in the early days that you're hoping to help overcome? There are a few things that are fundamentally different. One is what it takes to build a viable technology and product or business in deep tech and specifically in industrial sectors and technologies. A lot of our innovations are fundamentally questions of can the technology be built? Will the physics work? Will the chemistry work? One of the things we realized is it means that earlier in the innovation process, you need to wrestle with what we call techno-economics. So you're not just looking at the science and the chemistry, and you're not just looking at the business. You're looking at this complex inner weave between, okay, if I make this layer of chemical slightly thicker, 
it's going to reduce the performance in these ways, but I can get it from a supplier cheaper. And so is that a good idea or a bad idea? And we basically realized that it's not something you learn in the chemistry department at Princeton, <laughs> nor do you learn it in like a venture capital shop. No one really learns it. And so that's an area where we actually have invested in training our fellows to be better. Another example has to do with funding. How do you fund these sorts of innovations? One of the issues we saw in first venture capital wave of clean tech funding and innovations was they were funding technologies that would lead to companies that are in these industrial markets where things move very slowly. And the drivers for value were not as big in terms of margins. We learned that some of the time scales or the amount of resources needed or the ways in which early stage innovation ends up getting diffused into those markets don't necessarily match what we're used to in venture capital. And so one of the really exciting things that I think is happening now, there's an awareness that we need to be running some different experiments with how we fund these things. And there needs to be a broader spectrum of the funding that can support these innovations. So when you add up the level of interest and the diversity of new modes of support, that is a really exciting part of how we're tackling climate innovation right now. I think one of the reasons we see such intensity right now in that early stage innovation piece is I think folks are realizing we're sort of running out of time <laughs> to be planting these seeds of innovation. I mean, you have innovations that completely alter learning curves in terms of technology adoption and get us much more rapid progress towards decarbonization than we would have imagined. Um, and you also see that to get something to a point of maturity where it can play that role, that's a decadal sort of process. And I'm not of the mindset of it's too late, but certainly we all need to be in the mindset of it needed to happen yesterday. And at best, let's make it happen right now. And I think I saw that your goal is to have 100 fellows per year starting in 2025. That's the goal. We've really thought about scaling, not just to go big on climate, but as we get bigger, we're seeing that we can make more progress at supporting folks who are outside of concentrated institutions. Like when you start a program in Berkeley, you end up with a lot of Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, you know, fellows that come into that program naturally. We're making progress on gender diversity, on racial diversity. And that is really important for us, not just because it means we are more likely to find someone who could change the world with their ideas and research that wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. Um, but also because we've also realized that we're playing in a really broken pipeline of science innovation on some of these axes and demographics. And do you have applicants from other parts of the world? With philanthropy funding, we've been able to open up eligibility to the fellowship from folks outside, but we still have had it so they have to be here in the U.S. to do the fellowship. And that's largely because one of the things that we've heard from our fellows is that the high touch program that really concentrated communities is such a powerful aspect of us being successful in the work. Uh, we're also a small startup organization, so we need to know our own limitations in terms of where we are organizationally. But we would love to have funders that, that could support us in ways that allow us to open that funnel internationally. Um, that's one of the things we're hoping to, to keep building here. You just announced your newest cohort of fellows. Yeah, it's really exciting. So we just announced our 2022 cohort, which for the first time is actually supporting fellows across the U.S. in our local communities 
uh, are in residence communities, Berkeley, Boston, and now New York, but also in any community that's supporting fellows virtually. One of the things that's been great to see is as we scale, we not only get sort of that additional diversity of institutions and geographies and and just communities that we're drawing from, but we we're seeing really we have enough critical mass in that group where you're seeing pockets of innovation that are being unlocked through the fellowship. So uh, as an example, in this year's cohort, we have a number of fellows that are uh, working on new and creative ways and technologies to do critical materials and mineral extraction. You know, this is a problem where the critical materials we need to scale the supply chains for everything from electric vehicles to wooden mills, et cetera, they're not only hard to get to, they're unevenly distributed around the world. So they're hard on multiple levels, technologically, geopolitically. Um, and so the idea that we've got fellows that are looking at approaches that range from using biology uh, to do extraction, to new separations technologies, to new chemical processes is really cool. We've got within this group, a collection of fellows that are looking at approaches, new approaches to carbon removal, um, some of which are really at the new scientific scale of we're going to do a first experiment and no one's ever done. Uh, others of which are saying, you know, we actually have something that we think can scale to removing a ton of CO2 per acre of land uh, already. And now the question is, how do you get it to more than a ton and how do you get it to hundreds of thousands of acres? And what are all the challenges around, you know, doing that responsibly and measurement of it? Wondering how um, receptive over the years has the private sector been? I would think that there are certain parts of, of industry in tech or climate tech that are looking for next generation breakthroughs. So has that become something that the private sector is supporting for their own benefit? You're spot on. Most of industry today has oriented around the idea that, you know, venture capital and startups are probably the place they're going to look for disruptive innovations. You look at kind of commoditized sectors, whether it's, you know, parts of oil and gas, uh, petrochemicals, um, buildings, et cetera, venture capital and startups aren't really giving them enough innovation. And so when they look at Activate, they say, this is a group that's finding this very strong entrepreneurial talent in these disruptive technologies, um, but is supporting the development of the technologies in a more agnostic way. So one of the things that corporates have seen as unique in our community is we've got scientific talent at the same caliber as the top universities, but they're now in a mode and a mindset of, you know, how do I create real value? And they're really interested in engaging in conversations with corporates, not about speculative ideas, but about, hey, how much is this gonna cost? And how would we actually manufacture this? We've had a handful of corporates that have supported us a little bit financially uh, and engaged, but we feel like there's a much bigger opportunity there. How much involvement do you have with graduate level programs? I'm just curious if you know there's any kind of formal or informal relationship in terms of pointing their students to you. One of the things that we've realized is really important is for Activate and our fellowship community to be additive to the entire ecosystem. On the academic side, it's really important for us to be integrated with uh, the academic research community because that is the foundation for all of these ideas and all of this talent. What we find is uh, the ideas that we're then supporting are ones they developed at those institutions. So they're spinning those ideas out, they're licensing from those institutions, 
Uh, they're engaging their former faculty members as advisors in these startups. Um, and in the best case, that's a great win-win because the university benefits from satisfying their mission and getting technology out in the world, uh, having their students be leaders, but also commercializing the IP. In many cases, the lab access and the facility access that we're giving to our fellows as part of the fellowship um, is actually coming through partnerships with world-class research institutions. Elon, when you think about it in your journey with Activate, what has been the most inspiring part of the experience? I think that's an easy one. Most of the most inspiring moments for me personally, and I think this is true of our team, come from seeing those transformative impacts of, of our work and in our fellows. I'll give you one example. Two of our early fellows, Itasha Cave and Kendra Kuhl, uh, came out of Stanford. Kendra and Itasha were two early career, but really world-leading researchers in thinking about uh, catalysts that can be used to convert carbon dioxide into useful products and chemicals. So Kendra and Natasha recognized the importance of their science and that it could lead to something practical as a technology. And so they did the obvious thing, which was go and talk to a bunch of investors around how they might get funding to create a first prototype of, of this technology. Um, and at the time, the reaction was, well, this is wildly risky. You're two PhDs. This is an idea. You know, you have a nice academic paper. Actually show us that you can build a prototype and then maybe we'll consider funding. And they got caught in sort of a do loop where it's like, well, you know, they go back to the university. This isn't the place to build a prototype. And how do we get the funds to build a prototype to get the funds from the VCs? And then they were able to come into uh, to the fellowship and have just that early support. And all of a sudden they were able to not just make the prototype, uh, but able to really learn and shift their thinking on what the prototype should even look like and where the technology could be powerful. That then led to a company now called 12, which has grown to be one of the leading companies at the forefront of this idea of carbon utilization um, and carbon transformation. How do you see your role in Activate evolving? I would say it's gone through a few phases, right? I mean, initially, this is the best job in the world because we were attracting this talent. Being around those our early fellows, their level of talent and what they're working on and their ambitions is inspiring and contagious. But then seeing them go from idea to something real in the world, just nothing beats that. Um, and getting to now see Activate turn from you know a group of early fellows to an institution that was playing a real role and driving change in the ecosystem, I think was really rewarding. Now we've moved into a phase where for me, the most rewarding thing is we have a team at Activate that is doing all of the things we were doing early on far better than we ever did them or thought we could. Elon, I want to thank you so much. It's been great to hear in depth about what you're doing and the work you're helping to support. I'm sure we'll at some point have some of your former Activate fellows on to discuss their own <laughs> journey in startups. Our only definition of success is that the, the fellows end up being successful enough where their stories are way more important than any of ours. Thanks so much. That's it for the episode. Thanks again to Elon Gur of Activate for joining us. Thanks as always also to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Noah. And of course, thank you. We hope you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback. So please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.